Okay, turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. And uh, we're, we're going to start this morning uh, a series on uh, entitled Understanding Hell. And we're going to take a few weeks and talk about this seriously important biblical doctrine. Um, probably about two years ago, there, there began to surface quite a bit of, you know, I don't know how to say it, controversy in the body of Christ where um, the established idea of the doctrine of hell as an eternal place of torment uh, for, for unbelievers, that that idea became a, a question mark for many in, in evangelical realms. And, and books were written, and conferences held, and debates, and, and all this stuff started swirling about two years ago. We're, we're not early in the game by any stretch um, because it's been something that's been a hot topic for the last couple of years. Uh, <clears throat> it's it's a, uh, a challenging topic because though I think everybody kind of, you know, American Christians kind of understand the, the generic version, hell is a place of eternal torment that's going to last forever, nobody wants to believe that. <laughs> And, uh, and for sure, nobody wants to look at it and pay attention to it because, man, who wants to think about people dying and being tortured in flames forever? And I'll just admit that as I began to study this a few weeks ago and just go back through the, the verses and do some new reading and different things, I, it's just a challenging subject to address. And there's, there's good reason why I think people stay away from it. Uh, uh, good human reasons. I don't think they're good in God, but it, it's, a, it's a touchy subject for so many. But um, a, a couple months ago, I read an article in, um, I think it was the Christian Post. And it was telling about this whole movement of pastors who are... Uh, moving from being pastors to being atheists. And they've got a whole, uh, like, organization just for ex-pastors who are now atheists. And they actually do these meetings. This is fascinating. They do these meetings where atheist ex-pastors will bring potential atheist pastors, who are current pastors, and they'll listen to the conversation, and they'll listen to the speakers, and then they'll give like an altar call. They'll have a moment where a pastor can disavow his faith publicly. And, uh, and it's taking root. There's like they've got a membership of several hundred in the nation. And so I'm, re- I'm reading this article and having the same deal that you're having right now, like for real, like art, you know, Essentially, it's a coming out time for pastors to say that they're atheists. <clears throat> Ultra calls to be an atheist if you're for pastors. It's just, whoa, never thought about that. And uh, so I'm reading this article, and they're, they're walking with this woman through her journey. She was a Methodist pastor, 20 years, and now she is a, 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 a I, don't, I don't know her title, but it's a, she is an, uh, an authority in the Atheist for America organization, and she's one of their, their, their leaders. And so they said, how did you go from being a pastor for 20 years to being like, 
you know, a leader in Atheists of America. And she began to explain her journey out of faith. And she gave a few things. And then she said this, that the final straw for her was when she realized that hell was not real. That a loving God would never send people to hell. That that was a, a, a fable, you know, a fictional thing that people had made up to try to cause people to, to cling to religion. And, and uh, she didn't go into why, you know, the, the motives behind that. But she said after she decided that hell wasn't real, everything else was easy. And when I read that, it, man, it went through me because I realized that while there is a journey in our nation of people coming to faith, like believing for revival and a prayer movement and, you know, come on, let's get a bunch of people saved. While that is happening, and you see that in corners and pockets like in, in an aggressive way, and, and we want to see that, there is also this departure from the faith that you cannot deny, especially mainstream denominations, losing massive numbers uh, of, of attendees. And, and so then when I read her statement, I, I went back in my mind to the two-year-old controversy over hell, and I went, of course. Of course, if we get rid of the biblical version of hell, then not believing the rest of the Bible is easy. Take it from a pastor's mouth, you know? I mean, and so that pierced me back in July, and I thought, you know what? We need a, uh, a standard teaching on the biblical doctrine of hell. We need it for our community. I wanted to get it out there for those that listen to us by the internet, just so that we can make our stance plain, what we believe the Bible says about hell, but also, and this is the bigger one, so that we can get clarity on our soul over this issue. Because when you get clarity on your soul over the issue of hell, it adds a component to your Christianity that uh, is, is quite different than just sort of the average run-of-the-mill Christianity. And so I want to take a few weeks. I want to talk about this subject. Uh, the, today, I want to just do an overview. I'll go into, in a few weeks, some of the doctrine and work through some of the arguments you know, against the sort of traditional concept of hell, and then I'll work through what the scriptures say, particularly looking at Jesus' words about hell. But today, I just want to set the table. I, um, I want to be very careful with this subject. This is an important subject. Uh, if, if the issue of hell is that foundational, and it is, foundational to Christian faith, so much so that when you pull that peg up, all the other pegs fall, you know, come up. We need to be very careful and very clear about our communication in regard to it. Secondly, I want to be very careful about it because uh, this truth is such a profound truth. It's, uh, it's not one that we can afford to, to talk about lightly or just sort of brush over. Uh, it's for sure not one that we can ignore and the thing is that uh, hell is a very real place with real torment that real people experience. And, and they experience it forever. 
And since that is the case, and that is the biblical explanation of it, we can't afford to be sloppy with this topic. There's too much at stake. Uh, and we can't just brush over it. And so I am... Um, I'm personally moved over it because it's very serious. And so uh, as, we're, as we're talking about this, as we get into the doctrinal ideas, which we'll do in the next few weeks, and as we continue to talk about it, I, I want to exhort us not to just get where we're, we're being technical over, over these scriptures I want, we can't, we can't sit there, sit there and study these verses and sort of get the technical understandings and then you can put them together and then you can sort of land your doctrine and aha, I know what it says. And then that's the end of it. That, that cannot be how we address this issue. It can't be how I teach it, nor can it be how uh, you hear it and how we study it together. This has got to be something that impacts us at a heart level and in a, in a devotional way. And I know hell is not something that you tend to think about having devotions with the Lord over, but uh, we're talking about people's eternal destinies. And so we cannot allow this to be some sort of technical discussion, some theological deal where I'm just laying out the construct and see we're right. You know, that, that cannot be it. That is not it. And... Um, I will just say that uh, in the few weeks that I've been just sort of reapproaching it, it is producing a, uh, a, a real soberness in me. It's correcting me on a few levels. Um, <clears throat> there's a point or two that I didn't realize were so emphasized about hell, and then there's a point or two that I didn't realize were so not so emphasized. It's kind of interesting when you actually get through the study, but. But this thing is, um, it's working my heart and, and uh, it's showing me where I've, I've had error just in my approach to the doctrine of hell. And so I think um, the point of it is when we go into a study on hell, it shouldn't simply cause us to get a right doctrine. It should actually cause our hearts to be broken and have soberness and conviction, really plumb lining our soul before the Lord. And so uh, we got to love the word, amen. We got to love the word. Got to love all the word, not just the word that tells us how blessed we're going to be. We got to love the whole word. And if you love the word, you'll you'll love to hear these things, even if it's not comfortable. So uh, I just want to talk through this a bit. I recognize this. We have radically ignored uh, the issue of hell, we mention it often. And when you mention something like hell and you just mention it, but you don't actually deal with it, this, this thing like, oh yeah, they're all going to hell. I mean, like you get these phrases, going to hell. And it just like, I mean, it has no, nothing on it. And it ends up being a cuss, you know, like a, a curse for people. You just go to hell, you know. And, and, and that is like... The wildest thing to me because the uh, seriousness of this issue is so, you know, huge. It's massive. And in the church, we ignore it. In the world, we use it as a curse. And, uh, 
And, and then the thing is, when we haven't ignored it in the church, and this is one that I'm just going to confess, when we haven't ignored it in the church, uh, we've presented it with such arrogance and such vindictiveness toward the lost that any church that preaches on hell, they're just one of those hellfire and brimstone guys, they don't really love people, they just tell everybody they're going to hell. And, and I just confess that, you know, uh, especially as a younger man, um, I would say my error as it relates to dealing with the subject of hell is just, you're going to hell, you know, and just that arrogant, vindictive, you got to get right with God because you're going to hell. And, and almost like, you say it almost as a preacher, you want people to get saved, but you say it almost in this place of, you're so bad, you're going there, and you really have a problem, you need to get right with God, you know, it's not a brokenness at all. It's not the biblical mentality of it. And so often that hellfire and brimstone thing is, uh, it's because we don't rightly understand the, the doctrine. And so we have this, this whole manner of, of communicating it that's just apart from who God is. And so I would say as a young man, my, my biggest error has been uh, saying it with just this harsh, hard tone of arrogance but as a, as a little bit of an older guy in the ministry, my error has been nearly ignoring it altogether. You know, uh, they say when you're young, you're a lot more legalistic. And when you're old, you're a lot more gracious. Well, somewhere in there is some good balance. <laughs> you know, you hardline on the important stuff. You give mercy by the Spirit, you know, and, and, and with a free heart of liberty. But that doesn't mean that we throw away all of our boundaries. Amen. And I confess uh, again now uh, that our approach has been that we've ignored it too much. We've ignored the issue of hell too much. And my, my presentation of it has been trite because it hasn't, hasn't dealt with it in, in the serious nature that it is. Okay, uh, Romans 9. Those are my introductory remarks. Let's take a look at a few verses. Romans 9, Paul is talking about his heart toward Israel, toward his, his Jewish brothers and sisters that are, you know, uh, they're away from the Lord. Um, you know, as a Jew, his fellow countrymen, they, they didn't know Jesus. That many rejecting Jesus and really persecuting as Paul was a persecutor. And so, uh, verse 1, Romans 9, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. From Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Look at that verse 2. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart over the issue of the state of the, the, the spiritual state of the Jews and the fact that they'd rejected Jesus and the fact that their eternity was going to be one that's a part of. From God, and, and Paul goes through and in detail in the next few chapters talks about how uh, those that are in Israel according to the flesh will be broken off, foreign 
to the covenantal promises that God had made to Israel because of their unbelief and that others would be grafted in. And he's, he's not saying this with a judgment. He's saying this with a broken humility. I'm thinking about the apostolic mentality and I'm going, wow, Paul, you have continual grief and great sorrow for the friends that you have that don't know the Lord and for the nation that you know that is apart from God, you have continual grief and great sorrow, huh? And I'm reading that, and I immediately have to ask myself the question, because, you know, as a preacher, you can present things all sorts of ways. You can read that and go, me too. Man, I'm grieving over the state of our nation. I'm so broken. And present it like you're the guy that's in. Or you can just let the thing nail you and then just tell the truth of it. And I've done both. You know, sometimes the truth is so hard to bear, you just, you act like you know it. But uh, I had to ask myself this question. Is there grief in my heart, sorrow in my heart, over those who I know don't know the Lord. How often do I think of them? How often do I think of family members, friends, acquaintances? And how often when I think of them, here's where the rubber meets the road, am I sorrowful for them? Or when I think of them in their nasty sinner state, do I kind of get a little self-righteous and judgmental? You know, they're just alcoholics. They're just, you know, all into themselves. And I look at the apostolic example, I look at Paul and I go, huh, it doesn't seem like Paul was puffing himself up in a bunch of self-righteousness and, you know, sort of, you know, flaunting his own uh, spirituality. It looks like he's just broken over the issue of Israel's separation from God. And the fact that they are, unless they get saved, going to perish eternally. And then I looked again at Paul. Philippians 3. Flip on over there. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And it goes on to talk about how they will experience eternal destruction. Their God became their appetites. And, uh, and then I had to ask myself the question, What's my mentality of people that I would understand as having backslid from the Lord? You know, do I have a brokenness in my heart toward them? Or do I just have a, man, they need to get right with God. What's their problem? Are they going to go to hell? I mean, we kind of, the stakes are too high for us to have those kind of flippant attitudes. And I'm just telling you my little journey with these verses, I went, 
Paul is in grief and sorrow and weeping over backsliders. Grief and sorrow over sinners and weeping over backsliders. What's my approach? And then this is the question I had to ask. When was the last time that I actually cried because I recognized somebody was backslidden or lost and going to go to hell if they don't get saved? Not a pretty answer coming. I started thinking, well, I cry, you know, I cry, I'm, I, I cry regularly. I'm, a, I have, I'm an emotional guy. I, I feel emotions. I cry on a regular basis. When was the last time I cried over somebody's spiritual state, an individual? I mean, a, a face, a real face and a name. When was the last time that I thought about the person and I just got broken over the fact that unless they get saved, they're going to go to eternity in hell for real? My answer, I can't remember. When I'm going through this, I'm sitting there thinking it through in my mind, and I could not remember the last time that, I, that I, I cried over the state of somebody's lostness. I cried over my own heart. I cried you know, over my own state of dullness. I've cried over feeling the Lord's presence so close and he's just so sweet. Uh, I've cried for revival. I mean, I wanted God to come. I guess you could say, well, that's crying for the lost. Not really, because... I can tell you that the, the direction of my heart was just come. We want you here, God. But I could not definitively remember the last time I cried for the state of the lost souls that are unless salvation comes to them, they are destined for an eternity in torment. That, that's not okay. That's not okay. I... Uh, you know, I realized that if we, it's kind of like this. We think that the guy that talks about hell a lot is imbalanced or whatever, you know, like just off the deep end, always telling everybody they're going to hell. And I, I can see why we might say that because, you know, if the guy's got the, a bad attitude about it and he's not portraying the, the meekness of the kingdom of God, that's probably imbalanced. But the topic isn't imbalanced. We actually have come to believe in America. Now, follow this. We've actually come to believe in America that the topics of God's wrath, hell, judgment are taboo and topics you do not talk about because they're a downer. Those are biblical topics, biblical doctrines that are well established in Scripture. And I would propose this. Though there has been an example of many, including myself in the past, of dealing with those topics with a bad spirit, that if we, my, my, what I'm proposing is if, if we stay away from the topic of God's judgment, wrath, hell, if we stay away from that, we are far more imbalanced and far more unhealthy than the guy that's just got the bad attitude. To this place, 
that myself, a preacher, I've been doing this 20 plus years, cannot remember the last time I cried over the lost. It's not okay. I know this topic is uncomfortable. I know these issues are difficult to deal with. But beloved, we are so imbalanced and unhealthy if we don't. We've got to be able to look at these things square in the eye. I want to give you a few thoughts. The biblical, um, I'm I'm hammering this issue, thinking about it with a biblical mentality. I'm pointing to Paul and I'm saying he's got sorrow, he's got grief, he's got tears over backsliders. Well, there are biblical examples. Uh, David, Jeremiah, Jesus, who all wept when they were dealing with this issue of someone's destruction. And I just want to read them. Look at uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. You see in David the twofold issue, the twofold attitude towards rebellion in men. He's He's broken over the fact that they are not uh, abiding by God for God's side. Like, Lord, you're worthy to be obeyed and loved and worshipped. And my heart is broken that they're not loving you, God. But then you also have this other side that he he, he has the conception that those that are not serving the Lord will, will go to destruction. He goes, my eyes are running with rivers of water. Because men do not keep your law. Look at uh, Jeremiah. Flip to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah, there's a bunch of examples. It's not hard to find a crying verse in the book of Jeremiah. I just gave you, I'll give you one that's nice and clean. In talking about the proclaimed judgment over Jerusalem, he's talking about his own prophecies. And how they will not hear him. In chapter 4 he says they've become like silly children. They will not hear. Their ears are, are covered. They're uncircumcised. Look at verse uh, 17 Jeremiah 13. Talking to the nation of Israel about the, the prophecies of impending judgment. If you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. He goes, when destruction comes on this place and the remainder of you go into captivity, he goes, I will be weeping for you over the state of your destruction. Look at Jesus, Luke 19. And you have the, the corollary of this scripture in Matthew 23 at the end of the chapter. Luke 19, it's, uh, it's the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. He's going to really get in trouble in Jerusalem here in a few minutes. And um, 
It's really going to confront the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem for the last time. And of course, we know the story. They aren't going to take kindly to that, and they are going to have him arrested and crucified. Look at verse 41. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He's been prophesying it for three and a half years. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He goes, I know, I'm about to go and tell them once more. They've got to repent. They're not going to listen. And he's the one that prophesies the, the judgment of Rome coming to Jerusalem, which saw a million Jews slain. They reje- nearly rejected Jesus wholesale. The first, the first group, you know, we have a few thousand, several thousand that get saved that are primarily Jews. But, I mean, you're talking, you know, a few thousands, and the Jewish state is, you know, in the millions at that point. And a few thousands receive Messiah. You're talking the vast number of which reject their only chance for salvation. So the biblical approach to the issue of hell and judgment and people's destruction is a brokenheartedness. Now, there's times when you have to be bold with people and, and you snatch them from the fire. And then there's times when you're offering mercy and it seems like nonsensical. Like, why are you giving so much mercy? And that the Lord is the one that directs, you know, how to offer mercy and, and when to be bold and call people out of their sin in, a, in an abrupt style way. I think... Both, you see both in the New Testament. You see Jesus doing it boldly and firmly. And and then you see him tenderly weeping over the state of the lost nation of Israel. Uh, But in in some, the, uh, the main idea is that God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He, he's not yelling at sinners and going, you better repent. You're all going to hell. <laughs> I mean, that's not God. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He, he wants every man to come to repentance. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God, who is love, who creates every man for love, every man created for love with God, I'm telling you, there is an interesting combo of things going on in God. There's the full uh, release of his justice over a sinner who's rejected God's offering of his darling son, whom God slain in the place of the sinner. There's a full release of God's justice that's completely 100% justified. And we'll get into that deeper in a day ahead because the number one question people ask about hell is always, how could a loving God send people to eternity in hell? That's always, we'll talk about that. But I'll just say this for today, that there is this this, uh, combination in God of the full release of of justice as it relates to the punishment of, of the sinner who's rejected his son, fully at peace in justice, and 
the, the, the side of God where his love is eternal. He says to wayward Israel, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And so the, the, the love strand in God does not stop even when he's releasing wrath. He's God. He can do all things at the same time. You and I compartmentalize it. God has it all going on. And so the, the brokenness in the heart of God for the fact that, that sinners are rejecting his son and rejecting him and are going to spend eternity in torments, that is, is very, very real. Just as the complete sense of peace and joy in his release of justice is very, very real. Both of those realities are truth. We'll talk about that in a day ahead. Now, I think one of our problems with hell is the fact that we deal with uh, the Bible oftentimes from the lens of human sentiment, human sentimentality, rather than from a, a, a proper theological lens where we just say, okay, the Bible is true, God is right, tell us who you are and what you do, and we will bow before you and say yes. Oftentimes we approach the scripture and we go, eh, you know, I don't know, I mean, a loving God would never do dot, dot, dot. As soon as you say a loving God would never do dot, 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 what you've done is, in a sense, you've taken God from the place of the potter and yourself from the place of the clay, and you said, you know what, God? You're the clay, I'm the potter. I'm the potter. I'm going to make God in the image that I want him to be, because a loving God would never... Well, he is love, and he is justice. He's both. And in our compartmental, it shows our smallness. In our compartmentalization of everything, we can't see a loving God who is justice. We can't see a good God that does wrath because we're so compartmentalized, we're so small. He does all things well. He does them all. And at the moment that we start perceiving reality from the place of human sentiment... We, have come, we, go compl- we go into a, a, a no-man's land theologically. And so that's where so many of these ideas have come from. It's, it's human sentiment. I mean, no one hardly... Ha- I, mean, I just know very few ministers who have the guts at a funeral not to preach somebody into heaven. Human sen- sentimentality has ruled the day at, at, at our funerals. I mean, the question of whether somebody who's died has gone to heaven at a funeral, it's a foregone conclusion. Everybody goes to a better place. But that's not true. That's not biblically true at all. It's not even close to true. But because we can't deal with it and we we view everything through the lens of human sentimentality and we're just not willing to humble ourselves and say, God is true, let every man be a liar. He's the potter. We're the clay, the clay. Think about that. What is the clay doing saying it knows anything? We're the clay. And I, as a created, you know, human who is clay, I'm dust at the core, I get the wonderful job of trying to tell you what the potter is like? Oh, this is fun. I mean, this is a fun game we get to do for, you know, this age. I mean, we're going to see him, we'll know him, we'll see him like he is when we see him. But this is, I mean, we only get truths about who he is through revelation. 
We're the clay. The potter knows way better than we do. And we cannot allow human sentiment of our own making, our own feelings, and my own perspective, we cannot allow that to be the deal that dictates our theology. So I want to deal with this point about human sentiment. I think our problem is manifold. I think it's got multiple angles. I, I, you know, I, I don't have the exhaustive list, but I think that there's a few things that stick out that are obvious to me that, that these are problems. And as it relates to dealing boldly, but with meekness about the issue of hell, where do we get stuck? We get caught in one of a few camps. The first one is this. Uh, hell is so startling. It's so chilling. It's so hard to imagine eternal suffering and torment. Eternal suffering. Somebody goes, what is hell? Well, we've got so much imagery of destruction and fire and burning. I I imagine hell to be this. All five of your senses getting the worst input possible continuously, forever. The worst sounds, the worst smells, the worst sights, the worst feelings, the worst thoughts, the worst input in every one of your sensory compartments forever. The thought of that is so startling We can't look it in the eye. We just have a hard time looking that squarely in the eye. Because if we do look that in the eye, what are the implications? That means there's people we know that are there now. Right now. You know where they'll be tomorrow morning? Right there. You know where they'll be in 10 years? Just getting started. We have a hard time looking at this thing. So, because it's so hard, we ignore it. We just don't, we just don't want to preach that message, brother. Just, just make it a byword. Just, they're going to hell. Just, you know, make it a byword. Don't deal with the truth of it. Just, you know, if somebody questions you, hang to your doctrine. But ugh, don't make a big deal of this because this is, you know, it's too much. So we either land in that camp or we land in this camp, dull and asleep, having drunk in everything a Western culture drenched in worldly pursuits is offering us. We don't really have any care to consider the endless destiny of torment. Like, give me a good word, man. Come on, brother, bless me. Preach a message on, you know, the good life and the hundredfold return and preach a message on how, you know, I'm going to prosper and my body and soul will prosper and be in health. Come on, man. Preach something that's going to make me happy. You know what? If you go through and read Jesus' words and you read all the times he talks about hell, I am convinced there is no chance that you'd be listening to Jesus 
And he talks about a place where their worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. And you hear that. I, I just believe there's just no chance you'd hear that walk away feeling happy. It's impossible for me to think that his, his hearers in hearing his messages on hell weren't absolutely terrified. Our Jesus is preaching hell, and I'm sure the people listening to it were afraid. And I look at my own fear of man, and I go, man, if I preach a hard message, I, I say so many things to sort of just, man, if I could just get this to land, and hopefully it'll be okay, and maybe the people won't freak out. And I just, you know, just do all this, you know, verbal gymnastics to make the thing be okay. And you look at Jesus, and he just goes, eh, the fire is never quenched there. The worm does not die there. The eternality of their destruction is for real. I mean, this is how he would say it now. They will be burning forever. And he'd just leave it. And he does it over and over and over. There's no way his hearers weren't in shock when they're hearing this stuff. We've got to decide, are we, is it too hard to look at? So we've got to ignore it. Or are we just too dull and too drawn into a Western culture that we don't have any time for it? Because we're so asleep. Or maybe you're in the popular new camp. The new camp is love doesn't damn anyone to hell. Love and the idea of eternal torment are so distant theologically, you have to choose one or the other. And if you say that God sends people to hell, then you're saying he's not a God of love. Because in the end, love wins. And I'll just call that out. There's a book written by an evangelical minister named Rob Bell. He's really the one that brought the, the issue front and center. And I will say in his defense, he doesn't definitively say what his stance is, but he puts his stance, he puts the stance forward so much and says he's leaning this direction so strongly that the idea is that people, if there is a hell, that people only go to it for a very short period of time. That's kind of what he thinks. And then everybody gets to go to heaven because in the end, he thinks, love wins. It's really popular. God would never vanquish the object of his affections to eternity in hell. It just sounds so good, you know. You could just live a sinful life, maybe get a rap on the hand in hell for a week or two. That sounds like purgatory remixed. The truth of the matter is love and wrath are kindled by the same fire. The fire of God kindles love and wrath. And the manifestation of God's wrath and the manifestation of his love are from the same uh, well of attributes of his own nature. And so the, the outworking of defrauded love is wrath. And, and that's just reality. When love wins, it wins completely. It doesn't win, you know, it's not like the, the other side gets to win and we get it our way. No, God's love wins his way. It's love or wrath. The gospel, the gospel Paul's explanation of the gospel in, first, in Romans 1, verse 16, 17. The gospel is mercy or wrath. This is the gospel. And that's the, that's the duotone of God's love. 
It's love or wrath. You can't, you can't just separate it and say, well, if you do love, you don't do wrath. If you do wrath, you don't do love. That's such a low view of God, and it shows the smallness of the clay trying to w- decide what the potter's like. Let me give you a few verses, and we'll land. Matthew 25. Is this thing forever? And I'll touch this again in another week or two, but because that's one of the questions. That's one of the theological questions. Is this thing forever? Does hell last forever? Is it torment forever? Let me give you a few, few verses. Matthew 25, verse 46. Talking about the goats at the sheep and goats judgment. Those who rejected Jesus by rejecting, serving and blessing and and loving uh, Israel at the end of the age. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal or everlasting, it's the same word for both, life. Everlasting punishment. Notice, the punishment is forever. Not just the fire lasts forever. People like to parse that. They go, oh, we'll see it's eternal fire, not eternal punishment. No, Jesus said the punishment is forever. Look at Revelation 14. Verse 11, in regard to those at the end of the age who take the mark of the beast, they're going to go to the same destruction as anybody who rejects Jesus. Verse 11, Revelation 14. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And this is a phrase that just, this is a tough phrase. They have no rest day or night. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and receive the mark of his name. The eternal, (laughs) it's not a resting place. The eternal destination for someone who doesn't know Jesus is a place without rest from torment. I read an article this week, this oddest article. It was about a study that uh, this, this organization had did. It's not even a Christian organization, but it's a study on crime. And they were able to make a correlation between people, the crime rate in certain cities and people's understanding of heaven and hell. And what they did was they threw out a bunch of biblical doctrines, you know, the belief in, you know, grace, mercy, all these different things, and, you know, temporal judgments. None of them correlated to the crime rates in a place, but the one thing that, that when, when they, this belief was in place, the crime rates, rates were higher, the one thing was 
When people believe in heaven without hell, the crime rates are exponentially higher in those locations than if they believe in heaven and hell. Heaven without hell, when there is no uh, punishment, payment for sin, when everybody just sort of gets in, you can just live any way you want, that causes the human heart to believe that there, there's just an, it's just no morality about our lives. It's just, it's just free game, everything. And here's why. We're constructed this way. God makes what's known about his attributes known to us. He puts it in every person, even the fallen, puts it in our conscience, the existence of God, the realities of, of uh, uh, punishment and blessing. They're all in your conscience. You know that if you do well, it's going to be good. If you do badly, it's going to be bad. Like, you know that internally. And, uh, but when we change our view of God and we change our view of his ways and, and his leadership and we make them our way, the way we would like it according to our sentiment, it causes everything to be thrown off kilter. And we're seeing that. We see that in society everywhere. We're seeing it in the church right now. Beloved, these things are real. And we've got to allow the truths, the biblical truths that are foundational to our faith to seed our hearts and, and really cause us to have a character that's the character in, of the kingdom of God and not just something that's been kind of glossed over by our society. I had asked myself the question. And I want you to ask yourself the same question. Do you have any friends or family members based upon your understanding of hell and your knowledge of their relationship with Jesus, that if they were to die right now, they'd spend eternity in hell. That can't be okay for us. That cannot be okay. There's, there's, there's got to be a shift that takes place in, our, in our, the way that we think and not allow a, a culture to dull us down and to just sort of gloss over these issues. We've got to allow God's emotions to touch us over these issues. And then we, we have a difference in the way that we, we live as a result. We, we pray wholeheartedly for the lost. And, and we look for the opportunity to love and serve and not just build a bridge, but to share the gospel. It's the only hope for salvation. We've got to be able to stomach these things, guys. We've got to come out of this malaise and in a raw way deal with the tr- these truths. We've just got to. So I want to make sure as we're studying this that it's touching our heart. I want to make sure that we don't get into this place of just being, you know, familiar and it's technical, it's not real. No, this has got to get so real to us. And it needs to be one of the strands that governs internally, governs us internally. It really needs to be part of the whole.
And, and do me a favor, don't, don't take off the next few weeks just because you know I'm going to be talking about hell. Like, like really. We, we've got to allow these things to season us, beloved. We, we've got to allow these things to season our hearts and, and deal with it in the real place of prayer. I, I I'll say this. I was amazed, two, two things. Number one, in my own little journey over the last several weeks, I was amazed that as I started to look at these things, and I was reading different authors and, the, and listening to different ones and, and how they were talking with hell and how they were so impassioned by it and how it was, it was really clearly working their hearts and, and that they had real feeling over it, I was amazed at the, my, my, my lack of feeling. I was like, oh man, this is not good. This is not good. Because I'm listening to you know, different ones talk about how the subject of hell really causes their heart sorrow and grief for others and how uncomfortable they are with it. And I'm listening to it, I'm just going, I don't feel any of that. So I just stay with it. <laughs> and I just stay with it over the next couple of weeks and I just let these things start going. And so secondly, the second point is, and I was amazed how, I came from this dull place to just, I mean, just feeling the, the, the burden of this thing and feeling a brokenness for the lost. And I found tears over these issues in a very short period of time, just as the word began to seed and simmer and, and, and transform just little places in my heart. And so that's my word to you. If you're dull... Don't just turn away and go look for a bless me message. Like, let it just, let it seed your heart with something real. And if you're not dull about this, if this is something that is a part of your, like, you know, continual prayer, I'm praying for the lost, I'm in pain over the fact that their, their, their destinies are, are, you know, they're destined to destruction, then, then don't let that be a religious badge for you. Let that be an awareness of God's grace that he's, he's, touched your heart, and then partner with him with a brokenness over the truth of the issue. I, we're so silly sometimes. We get a little light. We're half inch in front of the other guy. We didn't know it 30 seconds earlier, but now we know it. And man, they don't know what I know. And we just had the attitude. It's just crazy. You know, we know something for two minutes, and we're a professional and an expert on the point, and we're trying to get everybody else, come on, you got to know what I know. This is so silly. That's just like little clay figurines, little Mr. Bill, just come on. I mean, just, it's so silly. This stuff is real. We, we need to allow it to, to season us. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and let's pray for a moment. I'll just say this, my apprehension in preaching this message is even this, that I haven't even allowed it to settle on my soul long enough to really even know what I feel. I ask the Lord for grace and even in that. Let's just ask the Lord to speak to us, Lord Jesus. Lord, as we go into this study and as we look through the verses and consider these truths from your word, just asking that you would season our hearts with truth. 
where we've been dull and where we've ignored the issue of this foundational doctrine that has power to compel our hearts by the love of God, I pray, God, that you would lift the dullness and you would release grace that we could stare it squarely in the eye and we would be able to digest truth. That truth over this topic would go into the inward parts and they would transform us. There's eternity, beloved, after this life. Some will go to the resurrection of the just. Some will go to the resurrection of death. This has to become real to us.